0: So many people are looking to live happier, more stress-free lives. We provide interviews from mental health experts across various fields because you know finding quality information isn't always easy. Let's find more sanity together. On today's episode, Dr. Dennis Kaljardik talks on neuropsychological evaluations for neurocognitive disorders. Dr. Skeljardic is a board-certified neuropsychologist and founder of Gulf Coast Neuropsychology, located in the Houston area, where he provides clinical and neuropsychological services with a wide variety of medical diagnostic groups, including traumatic brain injury, stroke, multiple sclerosis, brain tumors, neurodevelopmental disorders, seizures, dementia, memory disorders, and other neurologic-based conditions. He has 14 years of experience working in post-acute brain injury rehabilitation centers with his most recent position as Director of Neuropsychology and Clinical Programs. He is an adjunct professor in the Departments of Neurology and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas, and past president of the Houston Neuropsychological Society. Beyond this, he has numerous published peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, and invited addresses at national and international conferences covering various neuropsychology topics including brain injury rehabilitation, concussion management, caregiver burden and distress, cognitive rehabilitation, reliability and validity of neuropsychological assessment measures, post-traumatic hypopituitarism, and psychiatric disorders and fatigue post-brain injury. Now on to the interview. Okay, Dennis, good to see you. Uh, welcome to Sanity Podcast. Thank you. So, Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I appreciate you coming on. Um, so, this is the uh, first time that I'm having someone who is more of an assessment focused psychologist on the podcast. So, I'm super excited for this. So, you are a neuropsychologist.
1: Yes, yes. I'm a board certified neuropsychologist. Um, just, you know, I mean, I, I know you have a lot of psychologists on, on your show. Uh, a neuropsychologist is someone essentially that sort of is specialized in studying brain behavior relationships um so my background again has mostly focused in the uh, neurological populations uh in the through the lifespan whether it's traumatic brain injury alzheimer's disease other neurodegenerative neurodegenerative disorders and also with younger folks you know attention deficit and, and other neurodevelopmental issues hmm.
0: and um if someone on 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 listening is like, "Well, what does a neuropsychologist like actually do like what what is the day to day of a typical neuropsychologist look like? What type of work are you guys performing
1: So you know it, it, we're very similar to other clinical psychologists. you know we do do assessment, we do do therapy uh research as well I, uh, A lot of my life has been devoted to research uh, but the assessment again is is quite different than what a, a a clinical psychological evaluation would mean. where we're looking at cognitive skills. So, uh, going through language, attention, processing speed, visual, spatial skills, memory, executive functions. Uh, so usually the, the, the referral that comes to us is uh, this person has some sort of underlying, or we, we suspect an underlying neurological, uh, issue. Um, and outside of let, let's rule out what are some of the, the, uh, uh the comorbid factors that could lead to why the person is experiencing memory problems. It's not always a neurological condition. Uh, I've had referrals. Where the neurologist will send the person to me saying well i suspect the person has a neurodegenerative disorder like alzheimer's but do they really have alzheimer's uh, now i'm also given my background i I'm, I'm very versed in looking at mri ct reports uh anything that sort of give me a sense of what is going on in the brain if anything uh, and then the evaluation sort of helps split things out so for example i had a case recently where the the referral was for a p- potential or possible alzheimer's Uh, And then through my clinical interview, which I'm sure any psychologist that listens to this will say is probably one of their best clinical tools, uh, sort of gives you a good sense of what's going on. And in in this particular person's case, she had an extensive history of uh, psychiatric uh, issues that she had not really had dealt with uh, uh, in all her life. So by the time she came to me at age 68, uh, she was complaining to a neurologist of memory issues. And the testing, she showed that she had a lot of strengths across the board so in my opinion the, the the diagnosis was not alzheimer's or mild cognitive impairment it was probably more related to just sort of unresolved uh, psychiatric issues and and my recommendation was primarily treatment focused uh which which again as a neuropsychologist we do provide treatment um uh, you know jason i've worked uh several years in traumatic brain injury rehabilitation yeah so a lot of my uh day-to-day there was a, a lot of it was cognitive rehabilitation uh, psychotherapy
0: but a primarily, assessment has uh, uh, the neuropsychologist there, and you know one thing that that neuropsychologists get more training in than um, clinical psychologists and other specialties are these neurocognitive disorders or neurodevelopmental disorders. So, for example, if somebody came to me with a referral and said, "Can you do cog testing and tell me if this is a?" You know frontal temporal dementia versus Alzheimer's versus you know neurocognitive developmental uh, problems later on in a Parkinson's disease. I, I that's not something that I would be able to do, but you you, you get training in, in uh, helping trying to di- diagnose actual neurocog disorders.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so again, I mean, uh, when you look at for, let's, since you did bring up uh, uh, neurodegenerative disorders like you know frontotemporal and Alzheimer's, so there's going to be different patterns or in, in their profiles or their performance that will sort of differentiate one versus the other. So, you know, in Alzheimer's case, for example, you'll 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 obviously see memory issues, uh, which is sort of the commonplace with Alzheimer's folks, but you also see a sort of a combination of uh, other language uh, deficits that that are, are typically associated with Alzheimer's, whether it's naming, word finding difficulties, and so on also even on their memory performance you would typically see a person with alzheimer's having a a, a much tougher time with encoding information so if i read them a list of words to remember they would have a really struggle encoding the information on the flip side if i assess someone with parkinson's which is more of a subcortical uh uh, process uh, there you see a different profile you may not see as a pronounced memory problem the problem may not be so much as encoding information, but more of a retrieving information because it has more of an executive uh, aspect to it. So, so those kind of things where both patients, patient A and B, one Alzheimer's, one Parkinson's, may both have memory problems. It's sort of helping to differentiate the, their two profiles to help neurologists and other treating doctors with with their you know, their diagnosis and their treatment plan. Yeah.
0: And you, you said something really cool here, which was cortical and subcortical. And just for people that might not know what that means, you know, when you look at the brain, like, you know, in movies or images and all the, you know, wrinkly parts on the top of the head, that's sort of, that's the cortical part. That's the top part. Uh, Then the subcortical is say that you kind of could peel it off like an orange and it'd be a thick peel. There's a whole lower part of the brain, um, which have different functions with the top cortical functioning. And, and well, maybe you should also, so what's happening more in the cortical level than in the uh, subcortical level?
1: Well, the cortical level, you're going to find all of your your sort of uh, focal main uh, uh, compartments in terms of uh, what it is that we do, whether it's language or visual spatial or or, uh, uh, or vision and and so on. And then the subcortical, the white matter is really sort of the the messenger, so to speak. They're propagating the information. So uh, you have your gray matter, the cortical matter on top. And then if you were to look at a coronal or a sagittal view of the brain, you would see all this white matter. And the white matter just sort of comes all the way down as you go towards your, your spinal cord and, and, and sort of transverses down uh, that way to send out the signals. So again, if someone if again if you look at someone who has a stroke, you would see there would typically be a more of a, a cortical type, type focal injury. So the person may have a, a language issue like aphasia. Uh, where in a traumatic brain injury, you may have someone that has diffuse axonal injury, which is typically more of a subcortical uh, damage. And the person may still have uh, preserved language and other skills, but maybe their processing speed is slower than it was before the injury. So it's a sort of different, uh, different uh, way to look at things.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and higher order reasoning would be um, in more, and not that it's not all connected, but the higher order reasoning would be in the cortical, well, front, front cortical yes. area. Yes. Yeah, um and you know of course movement goes through the whole system but some more of the planning part of movement w- would that be more cortical and then the subcortical so sort your of primary motor that?
1: cortex and your primary sensory cortex uh, as it says are, are the cortical parts. so if you have a stroke in the primary co- motor cortex you're going to be hemiparetic or have lack of motion on the other opposite side of the body i mean that's what's going to knock that out as you move more interiorly for if we're just talking about motor you'll have different aspects of your motor abilities impaired. So if it's, if it's impaired on the motor strip, you're going to have lack of motion in, let's say if it's the injuries on this side, you'll have lack of motion or paresis on the left side. If it's more of an anterior injury, you may have more difficulties, not so much with motor strength, but maybe motor coordination, motor timing, how you plan the motion. Uh, we had one case long ago, uh, the person, had a very, very anterior, uh, anterior communicating artery aneurysm. Uh, and that affected the what they call the anterior callosum, the, 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 the white matter that connects the sort of the frontal parts of the brain there. And the person had what they call alien hand syndrome. So they had fine motor movement, but sometimes the one side of the brain was telling the hand to do something that was out of that person's control. So they couldn't really tell. So they would usually like try to grab their shirt, even though that was not their intention. Okay. They didn't do anything like malicious or bad with that hand, mm-hmm. but it was just like this jerky movement that the person didn't have control of. So that is still part of the motor track. But again, as you go forward, there's a, a increase in layers of those abilities are getting built upon. So it goes from your basic motor skill, moving your hand, think, think of like binary, you know, on and off zeros and ones. As you go further, that becomes more complicated uh, in terms of skilled movement, how you're uh, reaching out to uh, movement into space grabbing things and motion intention all that kind of stuff Hmm.
0: so going into the the neuropsych um, eval specifically what are the different you you said some of them before but what are the different things that you uh will look in the clinical eval for example you said a good clinical interview uh and what what are the other components of a neuropsych eval
1: yeah yeah. first and foremost is a clinical interview i want to make sure i'm getting all information and uh, as, as again, I'm sure some of your listeners, uh, professionals, uh, know that you don't always get the medical records that you want to get. Uh, so it's some, sometimes having, and also, especially, uh, in, in most cases, you want to have a family member there to give you as much background information as possible because there, especially in the out more, the elderly population to dementia type cases, it's going to be the spouse or, or sibling, uh, excuse me, uh, offspring that's going to sort of. Uh, sit there and tell you like, yeah, mom or dad, or they're doing this, 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 while the patient themselves is sort of denying it. So, so that's always important to have a, a, a someone in there with you, if possible. Uh, with regards to the domains, uh, you know, I, I'll a very brief little story. I when I was on an internship, uh, 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 I think it was Heilman of Heilman and Ballenstein, uh, the clinical neuropsych books uh, that I've, I've been trained on. Uh, I think I think it was Heilman came to do a, a, a didactic uh, at my internship and they brought in a patient, he didn't do any neuropsych testing, uh, but he just simply asked the person questions, but he did it in a way where if you, if, if you were trained and you listened to his questions, you almost knew he was going from anterior to posterior in terms of how he's asking the questions about what the person experiences. And that's sort of the same thing that goes on with the domains that we assess. We want to we're not assessing languages for the sake of assessing language we know that there's parts of the brain that are specific for language we know there are parts of the brain specific for visual spatial skills executive skills and so on so the neuropsych eval is sort of just mirroring that so uh the after the in, interview i'll uh want to suggest some aspect of sensory motor now, typically the neurologist, if I do have records, will have done a complete uh, a neuro exam and I'll get a sense of cranial nerves and paresis and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes I like to see it for myself. Sometimes neurologists may not assess for other things like uh, visual spatial neglect, where a person after an injury, a stroke or traumatic brain injury may have a difficult time attending to stuff on the left side. So I wanna assess for that specifically. Uh, I wanna also look at fine motor skills because sometimes it's not just did if I see it first, but I want to make sure that these things are set in place. so if it's going to interfere with their performance, you know if I'm doing a, a, for example, a, a, a visual processing speed task like on the waist uh, like uh, the symbol search or or a uh, coding, um, if they have a fine motor issue, that's going to impact their performance. Is that really because of their processing speed skills or because they have a fine motor issue? So I do that just to sort of get a sense of where they are physically and sensory. Uh, then I'll go into language, uh, sort of just to get a basic sense of their naming skills, word finding, a basic comprehension. Okay, we're not, I'm not having them listen to paragraphs of information and so on, but I want to get a basic level. Uh, visual spatial skills, again, so, so again, uh, I'm sorry, I should have prefaced. Language, we know that most people have uh, language in their dominant hemisphere. So if there's an injury there, you're going to expect to see some language problems like aphasia and so on on the other side the non-dominant hemisphere you're going to see more uh, visual constructual, visual spatial skills there's a whole theory of we have our what and our where pathways you know our what pathway helps us develop what an object is that we see so when the visual spatial information comes in our brain sort of breaks it down and we get a sense of what it is we're able to identify it and the where pathway uh, our visual spatial skills allow us to determine where things are in space so we're uh, we're able to reach out for a cup of coffee without overshooting and, and doing all those kind of basic things and so what do you the, mean by has,
0: dominant and non-dominant side so okay
1: yeah, i'm sorry so the dom- dominant hemisphere is your uh is where language is right mm-hmm. so I obviously the majority of people who are right-handed about 95 percent people are right-handed will have language on their left side so uh, if you have god forbid have a stroke or injury on the left side there's a good chance you're going to have a language problem the non-dominant hemisphere is the side that does not have language, so that would be typically uh, the, the the visual spatial aspect of our brains, and for most people, it's it's going to be the right side of the brain that has the is the non-dominant hemisphere. Okay, so again, dominance is where language is essentially, um, and then also, so after I get a good and again, if you can imagine, language and visual spatial skills are really the the more basic domains I'm assessing. Once those are cleared, uh, then uh, I go on to higher order, so attention processing. Uh, executive skills, um, and uh, as as I'm sure a lot of your listeners probably know, who are or, who are in the field or, or have assessed executive skills before EF uh, executive functions. Executive skills is not a unitary function. It's it's hard to pick one executive test and say this is this is covering the person's executive skills. Um, especially in the traumatic brain injury world, I've had folks that aced a lot of the executive tests but they go on to do a lot of inappropriate behaviors that sort of fall outside the norms uh, that what we would consider uh, appropriate so th- clearly that is also an executive issue that we have to uh, address yeah. so it doesn't always transfer to paper and pencil test.
0: and i might be i might be over over speaking with my opinion here with executive functioning testing but we, we have very good executive functioning tests for specific domains of executive functioning but we don't have executive functioning tests for the whole range of executive functioning. I think that's what, what you're talking about there. So we yeah. can see if someone is having a hard time changing rules or maintaining an idea or, you know, things like that, but we might not be so good at measuring, um, social cognition or doing appropriate social behavior with, with reasoning or, or planning out and stuff like that. So people really can ace executive functioning oh, totally. on the totally. test, but have very serious executive functioning problems. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that really goes right back to my clinical interview. That's where I want to get that information because I've had individuals with severe traumatic brain injuries who have made a, a, an awesome recovery uh, and are functioning fairly well in a, in a more structured setting. Uh, but I would still be very concerned of allowing that person to go back out into the community to do A, B, C, or D because of their social cogn- poor social cognition or, or uh, inappropriate behaviors that you're not going to see on paper and pencil testing. Uh, so those are the biggest concerns. And I've told people, uh, I think I probably told you when you were uh, training with me over uh, uh, here in Texas, um, the the person that concerned me the most in terms of functional outcomes was not so much the person that maybe had a, a, a stroke with a hemiparesis on one side, maybe some language issues. It was the person with uh, a, more of a frontal injury who had complete ability to function and move and speak. But may not have the wherewithal to decide what is appropriate in the community and they they're the ones that are more prone to making poor decisions mm-hmm. or judgment and god forbid sometimes get themselves into other uh, uh hairy situations so uh so th- that's something you're not going to get on any kind of paper and pencil neuros like this
0: what was that famous case where the guy i think he was working on railroads and he uh it was like af or something where he do you know what no, i'm talking uh, about uh phineas gage phineas gage yeah Yeah. that's what it is i I definitely
1: recommend to your readers if they (laughs) want to get a good sense of probably one of the most classic neuropsych cases look up phineas gage uh very briefly um he was a gentleman back in the 1850s working on the railroad in vermont and uh he was tapping down what they did back then to dynamite sides of the mountain for the railroad he uh he had uh, gunpowder or whatever down in the in the hole and his iron uh spike hit a rock that caused a spark and the iron spike this four foot very thick you know iron just sort of got him here and you know so through the, the, the chin out the top of his head and he survived for i think another 11 12 years until one day he had this horrible seizure and, and passed but uh what was you know you have to remember this is like victorian times this is you know back in the 1850s and this was your average joe who behaviorally just started acting super inappropriate um uh was obviously using vulgar vulgarity and and his behaviors generally that uh was just not you know accepted by society at the time but that again i advise your readers to look him up he's an interesting case study for sure
0: yeah and this is just jumping in the middle but uh what what, what was it oliver sacks the man uh man who mistook his wife for a coat rack like that's another uh hat for, rack yeah, or something record, hat, yeah. hat rack a hat um i should probably know the 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 name of this for recommending it but that's another really interesting book about neurocognitive disorders and how it how it plays out Um oh, yeah, I, yeah. i'll put a link yeah. of the actual exact name but that's definitely the author yes uh, yes, just, it, yes it is
1: yeah that's been a that while that's a good story that. for sure
0: um okay so um you had mentioned some areas that you measure so we also have like memory iq uh, i didn't go into memory much um yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, no, memory
1: um, is usually, and again, I I may have told you this when you you were with me in Texas, it's, it's going to be the biggest complaint. So 95% of all my patients, whether it's traumatic brain injury, stroke, uh, neurodegenerative, that's going to be their big complaint, memory, you know? And a lot of times it may not be memory. Uh, it could be something else. It could be an executive uh, problem. It could be an intentional issue. Uh, I tell a lot of my patients, uh, well, if you're not attending to something, how are you remembering? So a lot of our uh, the, the brain drift folks that I worked with uh, in my years, usually it was an attentional problem. It was not necessarily a, uh, a memory problem per se. Um, a lot of times people, I think a, a lot of maybe your listeners or, or the general public just think, well, oh, he has a memory problem. He must have Alzheimer's. He must have some sort of dementia. That's not the case. A lot of cases you want to look at to make sure that it's not attention it's not their ability to process the information and to acquire the information Um, if you've ever seen an alzheimer's patient in in later stages it's very clear uh, their memory profile that's a very sort of flat learning curve uh, and even their recognition of information is poor or like earlier I mentioned about the persons with Parkinson's uh, where they may also have a sort of a very low or slow learning curve But they typically can recognize information after presented to to them so there's a difference between encoding and retrieval and that's where some of the memory tests that i select and most other neuropsychologists use help differentiate those those issues Hmm.
0: um So, and I'll go into some of these regions a little bit uh, more with you just just to break them down, the big ones. Uh, But before we get there, just to sum up. So when someone goes for a neuropsych evaluation, a lot of times people just think, well, you're just going to test my dad or you're going to test me or test my kid, and then we're going to have some numbers and that's going to be great. It's way more complex than that. It's an entire clinical interview, getting their background, change in functioning. How has your behavior been changing over time versus even just recently? Um, trying to get uh, reported symptoms versus getting the symptoms from the testing, looking at collateral information, like um, it, it might be imaging, it might be medical records, and it might not even just be neuropsych medical records. It could be, you know, someone has a thyroid problem or something mm-hmm. hormonal, or they, um, they um, re- recover, you know, they had cancer before or whatever it might be, having all that medical information, um, observing them seeing what their behaviors are during the testing. Can they focus? Are they looking away? Are they saying inappropriate things? Are they talking too much, talking too little, expressing emotion, going through all the testing, then taking all of that testing and all the other information, putting it all together to figure out what's going on with the person. And one thing that you mentioned several times, which I think is is critically important to the testing, is that all of these different areas have different layers of functionings and different parts of it. And so, but since the system is all interconnected, one broken area in a chain could mess up the entire chain. And I'll give an example of that. So you need to look at all the different parts in order to figure out what's wrong. So you were talking about learning a lot. So with learning, first, you need to have the attention to look at at what you're learning. Then you need to be able to pull it into the shorter term memory and have it there. Then Mm -hmm. you need to be able to convert it and encode it and store it. And then after you store it, you have to be able to retrieve it. And somebody might say I have a memory problem, but their memory system might be intact. But it's actually because they don't have the appropriate attention; they're unable to get that information in. But had they had that attention, the rest of it's working okay. Or the person has the intention, and it's not being encoded in, so then it never gets stored, so they can retrieve it. So, so the systems are far more complex than what maybe anybody might assume, or maybe not assume. Maybe they think it's definitely. And
1: and and we know we were taught that uh, if if you read uh, on Alan Badley uh looking at both uh working memory uh, sort of you summarized it pretty perfectly there in terms of looking at the uh uh, verbal working memory as well as visual spatial sketch pad and visual spatial uh, working memory so really that whole process it was all sort of laid out by someone like alan Badley, and then we sort of adopted that into neuropsychology as we do our assessment you have to remember while neuropsychology itself has been around for a good 40 plus years uh as, as a, a a clinical uh sort of uh, approach uh we we're basing it all on the studies of of people from the past you know Geshwind and all these other folks that sort of just sort of built up their knowledge base of the brain uh in terms of classic neurology that sort of transferred into uh, neuropsychology and how we assess it so again cases like phineas gage and, and all those folks that we were able to extrapolate that information from and say okay well how do we see that in a in a snapshot when we're seeing our patient in our in our uh, testing room? So those the tests were eventually developed over time, uh, you know, going back to probably the 40s and 50s, and then, uh, then just getting sort of built upon and improved over time.
0: Mm-hmm. And 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 so when we do these testings, you have to rule out simple problems or more base problems, and then if those are okay, then you assume it's something more up the chain.
1: Like when you were talking
0: evil. about, like if somebody has a motor problem and you're asking them to do something with drawing. Uh, to test right. something you right. can't assume that there's something with that system if they're unable to draw because there's a motor issue
1: exactly i always start with the my the the sensory motor is my first i want to just get a general sense of what's going on because again like i mentioned earlier with that that visual uh, uh visual neglect i know maybe some for some of your listeners maybe they don't know what uh, neglect syndrome is it's typically an injury that resulting from uh the the non-dominant hemisphere which prevents an individual to attend To their left side it sounds and i'm not saying it happens in all cases of right-sided damage Mm -hmm. but it's it's a very very odd phenomenon especially for the patient uh people think well it's oh they're not seeing that way or they're not hearing that way it's they're not attending to that way yeah so if i have a patient that comes to me with a right-sided injury and i didn't assess for neglect first and then i'm doing this testing and all of a sudden they're not focusing on you know on the on the left side of their page or something like what's going on here and so i you want to get the basics first and then build from there 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 are times i'll modify my battery in the middle of the evaluation if i feel a person is struggling on the basics why would i then go give them a very complex executive functioning test when i know that they're they're not going to be able to to do that um uh, or do that really well Uh, so Mm -hmm. so it's a combination of i have i have a plan before they come in in terms of what kind of tests i want to give based upon my knowledge, uh, hopefully I have enough of it before they step in about you know, from the medical records. And then I sort of plan it out as it goes. But again, like you said, a, a comprehensive neuropsych eval can last somewhere between four to six hours, uh, but that includes everything you mentioned earlier. I'm not gonna go through it again, uh, because you wanna get that picture. It's, it's hard, uh, as with any other clinician, to, to make that decision in such a short period of time, if that's your one, one time with them uh, uh, in your office, to make that determination and you want to make sure it's as accurate as possible uh, because again especially in, in neuropsychology your what the decision you're making and having worked in the rehab world uh, for most of my my career that decision is going to then sort of dictate what their treatment course is mm-hmm. so i want to make sure that my diagnosis is putting them on as correct treatment course as possible so they're getting the best help because as you know having uh, uh done some work with me uh, you know that you know, folks with uh traumatic brain injury stroke they tend to improve that that's the goal so you want to make sure they get on the right treatment path when uh after the diagnosis
0: mm-hmm. um and, and then also i mean part of the nitty-gritty here that we keep talking about is that all these domains have little smaller subsections to them so it's not just language language underneath it has all these little different subsects so you need to measure you know n- multiple parts of a, of a single um, cognitive area in order to get an understanding of it. So I, yeah. I just want to go through some of these areas just so people know what we're talking about. Sure. I think language is pretty, um, it, it's pretty self-explanatory, example. but let's go through some of the areas of language that you look like, like aphasia naming things. I don't think people often think about, um, how such a basic function of saying, this is a cup, this is a microphone really could get damaged by having a stroke or a brain injury.
1: Right. So uh, let's, let's break it down even further. And yeah. again, let's, let's Please. use our cortex a, as the map. So again, let's, let's, let's do the, the dominant hemisphere, the left hemisphere, uh, you have anterior and posterior regions for language. So in the anterior region uh, you would expect more expressive language dysfunction after a stroke or injury. So like you mentioned, so if this is more of a frontal injury in the left side, I would be expected to have diff- more difficulty with naming uh, general speech uh the person will be aphasic they may not be able to say things of course uh, uh your your listeners can look up a uh, a uh, uh, broca a famous uh, neurologist from the 1800s who had his famous patient that they called tan because that's the only word he would generate was tan uh that's all he was able to say after a stroke um so again you'll have more of a, an expressive language aphasia uh more posterior injuries you'll have more of a receptive language aphasia the person can have what they call jargon aphasia they can they'll speak fluently but it'll be gibberish usually it's not it's not I maybe mean, more nonsensical not on target not on topic but because that's more because their comprehension is impaired so if i'm saying something to you and god forbid jason you had a receptive aphasia you may not be comprehending what i'm really asking you uh, or telling you and your brain is going to shoot something out based on what you thought or, or the brain thought it, it interpreted or deciphered mm-hmm. So the person, so you'll have on one, one sense, the more non-fluent aphasia in the frontal aspect of the brain or the anterior and the more fluent aphasia and the more posterior if there was damage in those areas. All
0: right. So we have, we have, uh, the, the, any, any other areas of language? Uh, I, I'm again, uh,
1: uh, there are so many different types of aphasia too. So you have the more in the, the frontal part of the brain, like you said, uh, it, since it's more the expressive aphasia, you can have the transcortical motor aphasia uh uh broca's aphasia or you know it's all depends on where uh, where it is uh, you'll have different symptoms related to it there's also uh, uh, um oh, i'm blanking on the name now uh, uh where the, the 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 person's ability to repeat information uh, or, or or mimic is impaired or or oh, conductional aphasia, excuse me. Uh, so so you have different uh, parts of the brain that could be impaired, uh, affected differently based on where the stroke was and how the language is, is uh, sort of uh, presented. Uh, but again, the uh, the more uh, expressive aphasics, they tend, from my experience, they tend to improve or make improvements more readily than some of the receptive language aphasics. It's just a, it's probably just more of the complex system, but uh, the recovery for the expressive aphasics tend to be a little bit better. Hmm. And that's where, you know, speech pathologists and all these other uh, great uh, therapists come into play to sort of uh, help out.
0: Yeah. And we can see the different areas of expressive and receptive with with children where they could understand sooner than they could than they could speak. Um, Yeah,
1: that's yeah. If you just look at general uh, overall development. Sure.
0: Yeah. Uh, Okay. visual spatial. Um, What does that even mean? Or perceptual reasoning, visual spatial? What does that even mean and why is it important?
1: Well, again, our world, uh, for for people who have vision, uh, you, you're, you're taking information just like you are with your ears when you're listening to language, since we are immersed in language in this world. Uh, so in terms of uh, visual spatial, we want to make sure that we're uh, navigating our environment uh, correctly. We're not you know, bumping into things, even though some of us, uh, like myself, it can be clumsy. We want to make sure that we're navigating the environment, we're attending to the environment well. Uh, so when it comes to the visual spatial domain where I assess, again uh you most of my patients will not have severe visual spatial problems except for those folks who may be traumatic brain injury or stroke and, and some other neurodegenerative processes i want to look at visual perception so sometimes i'll use a very basic visual form discre- discrimination task just sort of does this shape and these choices down below or you know which one is the same as this one um i've also used i readily use like matrix reasoning from the waste uh, again a little more abstract uh reasoning in that regard uh and then construction just any kind of construction task you know block design from the waste being an example uh but anything just to see how they're n- not only uh can they d- discern you know certain shapes and how they sort of uh, uh, uh sort of interlay over each other and so on uh but but also to just sort of uh look at their their planning of it as well you know is there is there approach to a design piecemeal or is there some decent organization to it? So, so again, another thing I want to mention to you and your, your listeners is these tests are not again, just sort of compartmentalized by themselves. So when I'm looking at visual construction skills, I really am still looking at executive skills, planning and organization. So again, the, even though there are separate domains, like you initially described. They're really uh, in, in, they inter they're, they're interrelated mm-hmm. in so many ways. I, I don't just look at it as oh they are impaired on a visual construction test, uh, and uh, all their executive skills are also impaired. Could those two be related? They they probably are.
0: Yeah, because yeah, a single test because it's all connected hits multiple dom- domains. Yeah, and
1: and, and that's that's a, a thing that you know when you explain to patients when you when I, when I do provide a feedback session is i try not to of course explain one test on its own but you you have to any good any good neuropsychologist will explain and look at the entire profile how what's the big picture what does everything look like uh remember um and and again you and i could also probably discuss at some point if you'd like about symptom validity about uh, uh, whether or not someone's putting forth good effort uh, on testing and it doesn't necessarily mean they're intentionally intentionally wanting to not put good effort it could be they're not having a good day that day they're not feeling well or something uh, especially if you're working in a neurologic population they may have medical issues that they're not feeling well so sometimes these other symptom of tests which uh, I, I, unless you wanted me to i can get into more detail just sort of help determine what is what is that level person's level of effort at this moment Uh So we want to look at that as well. That's very important when you look at the the broad range of uh, neuropsychological testing. Because, again, remember, a neuropsych eval is a snapshot. Unlike rehabilitation, where you see the person progress day in and day out as they're getting therapies and so on, the neuropsych eval is a snapshot. This is what they're doing that day. But I want to also make sure, are they, were they putting their best foot forward that day when I did the evaluation? Yeah.
0: So effort in the testing is a prerequisite into knowing what their full ability is. Uh, But effort could be, someone could be intentionally not wanting to do a good effort, but a lot of times, like what you said, it's not intentional. They might've gotten to yeah, a fight yeah, with somebody. Yeah, they might not have slept the night before. They might've been put on a right. new medication, which is making them groggy. Mm-hmm. And so they're just not putting forth and showing their true ability. And those lower scores are not gonna be accurate of some sort of actual dysfunction.
1: Yeah, uh, there's a whole different topic of forensic neuropsychology, which we don't have to get into yeah, today. But yeah. yeah, that would be a completely, yeah, that, that's, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: So atten- we would talk about attention and processing, processing speed, just briefly, what is attention and what is processing speed?
1: Well, attention again, uh, and, and this is definitely the area which I think is most mostly impaired or affected in a lot of neurologic populations. Because again, like I said earlier, they'll always complain about memory. But if you look further, it's usually attention processing. So within attention, uh, you have sustained attention, divided attention, gross attention. Uh, if you have someone who's severely impaired, you're looking at the basic, you're looking at gross attentional ability. Are they able to track? Are they able to stay alert Uh, are they easily arousable Uh, from that you could then increase to some more divided attention can they attend to two objects or two or or multiple things in the environment at a given time uh sustained attention uh, can they stay focused on a task for a a long period of time without uh, getting easily distracted uh and again that could probably bring us into the whole realm of attention deficit disorder and so on Um, then processing speed is how quickly our mind Can sort of take in information manipulate it and spit it back out Uh, again like we mentioned in the very beginning when you have someone who may have more of a subcortical process or or, or injury uh, they may have lower or slower processing speed because again those connections are not as readily available Um, when we think about this diffuse axonal injury that's probably a term i I hear on the news a lot that's sort of spread around um think about the wire in your wall right the, the copper wire and it's got a a, a rubber sheath around it or, or a, a tubing or whatever you want to call it uh that helps keep the electrical uh a, a message within that copper wire it's trying not to escape well our brain our, our neurons have sort of the same thing we have the axon which is the same thing as that wire and we have a myelin sheath that wraps around it that helps prevent propagation of of electrical information outside the neuron tries to help keep it on that path as best as possible so in a diff- diffuse axonal injury because of the nature of the injury and the, the way the brain is contorted during an accident uh that myelin sheath can be torn off and then all of a sudden now the information the neuron is still alive you know it's, it's not a dead neuron but it's not a, fish, a- effectively transmitting information so the mm-hmm. information now as you can imagine is slower just like if i had like in the, uh, a copper wire uh, that was not uh, covered. It may not propagate the electrical information as readily as maybe like a you know fiber optics or something like that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and then we we hit on executive functioning, but um, and we said that it was complex, and we kind of left it there. What is executive functioning, and why is it so complex?
1: Well, again, uh, as humans, uh, because of the nature of our our frontal lobes and what we're able to sort of uh, develop uh, over time and the the complex aspects of what we can do, it's it's it really in terms of the frontal lobe. It is it is the seat of our soul. Uh, It is who we are as individuals. And, you know, you could uh, look back at a a book called Descartes era uh, error. Uh, looking at where they they thought that the, our soul was in our pineal gland, you know, it was that yeah. little tiny gland in our brain. But really, neurologists over the years uh, determined, and and also neuropsychologists, that our soul is really set in our frontal lobe. Um, and if there is damage to the frontal lobe, that's usually where you'll see personality changes in individuals. Where the you'll have the loved ones say, you know, Johnny is just not the same person he was after that traumatic brain injury, and he had damage to his frontal lobe. So. You have different parts of the the frontal lobe. Uh, just to uh, give you a breakdown briefly, you have the dorsal lateral parts of the frontal lobe. You have the orbital frontal cortex, and you have the medial frontal cortex. So the dorsal lateral has a lot to do more with memory, organization, planning, things that you would typically able you would be more readily able to assess uh, on a uh, on a neuropsych test. So again wisconsin card sorting test some other types of these executive uh tasks um orbital frontal tasks uh or, or orbital frontal lobe has a lot to do with just sort of how we do behave uh in the world or sometimes uh uh compulsions you know that i remember reading a case study once where there was a uh, i think he was some sort of a cardiologist or oncologist who had a horrible tumor and the uh, orbital frontal cortex and once they removed the tumor unfortunately some cortex came with it and all of a sudden, this was a very uh, uh, sort of uh, well-minded, uh, astute uh, individual who is now gambling away his entire uh, uh, all his uh, all his money and savings, uh, n- not having a sense of consequence. If you uh-huh. understand that, yeah. Uh, our and our medial frontal lobe has a lot to do with our initiation, motivation, uh, our, our sort of that oomph, so to speak. So you can imagine the the medial frontal and the orbital frontal cortex. That's hard to sort of test on paper. Yes. Okay. Now, that's again where the clinical interview is key. So I'm not trying to say that you cannot assess or, or gather information on executive dysfunction. Uh, but again, it's, uh, the, uh, I think the neuropsychologist is very well equipped to ask those specific questions to really knowing where a possible injury or a tumor or whatnot uh, is located to find out w- w- this is why that person's behaving that way um and and usually the first the first statement from a loved one is johnny's not acting the same way he used to something happened he's he was this uh uh, church-going uh good-natured you know uh, catholic boy and now he's cussing up a storm and doing all these horrible things and we don't know why and Mm -hmm. unfortunately it's it's the injury
0: and you know in there you talked about impulse control um social social functioning Mm -hmm. and then um also aspects uh, of emotion regulation that that we would find in executive functioning, too. yeah, you'll, you'll have a lot yeah. more
1: aggressive tendencies, uh, impulse behaviors, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there's tons of studies looking at orbital frontal cortex damage and gambling tasks. Uh, it's not so much that the person has the impulse to gamble, but they will usually make the poor decisions. They're they're looking at the short term goal, not the long term goal. So when they're when they're doing these gambling tasks, they're betting for the immediate gratification. They're not betting for the long game, thinking, that, wow if I play my cards right." I could really bank up a nice sizable uh, uh a pot here versus uh, i'm winning right now so i'm gonna do it right now so i usually explain it as like the path of least resistance the person is sort of looking for that immediate gratification because they're not looking at the big picture and that's very much in in sync with these executive function type deficits hmm. uh,
0: and then memory and as you said everybody um, about their memory talks about their memory is worried about their memory yeah. um and, and we and we went through the different areas but what are the different types of memory different types of memory yeah like visual verbal and sort of like brain, like what do you what do you actually assess when you're doing memory testing
1: right so so uh you know if again if you look, go back to like adam Badley and some of those other concepts you have know, uh the, the working memory so i want to look at a short-term uh work i want to look at working memory skills so sometimes again for, the, for those of your listeners who may be familiar with the ways you know digit span arithmetic something that where the, the information is just being manipulated at that moment they're not looking for long term then of course when it gets into long-term memory that's more semantic knowledge but semantic knowledge you're not going to really be assessing on a lot of these tests because semantic knowledge is going to be uh factual information so if you think of like the information subtest from the waste where you know uh, what is the capital of uh, of italy that kind of stuff these, these are things that we learned long ago uh while we may assess that on an intellectual test you're not gonna i'm not gonna assess that for memory on a memory test in a neuropsych eval um episodic memory that's memory for things that we have developed in our past so uh do you remember where you were for your uh eight-year-old birthday that's more of an episodic memory uh, what we're looking at in uh, on neuropsych tests is rote memory, uh, visual spatial memory, like you mentioned, uh, sometimes contextual memory, story memory. We want to give people information that they would not have any kind of introduction to prior. So reading a list of words that they never heard, uh, they were never read to before by by someone, a story that they may never have heard before. Uh, uh, looking at designs and and, and presenting the designs, then asking them to to learn those designs, and usually over trials. you know we're not just doing a flash memory where they're asked to look at this, okay, now remember for the next half an hour. we want to make sure they're learning it. So a lot of the tests are geared to have uh, three trials, five trials of presenting the information just to make sure they learn it. Uh, and then uh, uh, also within most memory tests, you want to look at encoding, retention, and retrieval. So when you're encoding information, if Jason, if I read you a list of words, you are now actively trying to encode that information. Now, based upon your your abilities and your background, you may try to uh, be efficient in how you learn. You may figure, well, wow, th- those, those words that Dennis read me, I could put them in certain categories and that may help me remember them better. If you have an executive function deficit, you may not even think of or consider doing that in that organized fashion, right? Uh, then the retention uh, over a 20 to 30 minute delay period, are you holding on to that information? Uh, and then retrieval, especially like in a recognition trial, I'll say to you, okay, Jason, did I say the word book? Was that, did I say that word to you earlier? And then the person will just say sort of a yes or no. And that'll determine on how well you encoded the information, even if you may not have retrieved it when I asked you just to give me the list back without any kind of cues. So the information may have gotten in, but you're having a tough time pulling it out. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. And why, why even bother measuring like rote memory, which is going to be like repeating a list over and over, like what we used to do with index cards versus like contextual memory, which might be more like reading out of a textbook or hearing, hearing a story or even the visual memory uh, with, with, you know, rote content, like why do we even need to look at all that?
1: Well, I, I, yeah, my preference is always to look more at rote memory. I, uh, the, the contextual memory is is good, uh, especially if uh, you want to get a sense of if, if if that will help the person remember things better, if it's more in the context or in the story. Uh, the rote memory, again, you're just sort of giving a, a person a very bare bones uh, information again stuff they would not have been expected to be remembering on that particular day. Because uh, in a lot of cases, I want to look at anterograde memory. I want to look at that person's ability to lay down new information and learn it. Uh, again, I'm, I'm always giving this to you in the context of, of, the, especially the populations I've worked with before, mostly in traumatic brain injury and stroke. I want to see if the person can learn the new information versus retrograde memory, which I, 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 said earlier was remembering things from your past, your personal past, um, you know, uh, what, what you did at your job. You know, a lot of our patients, they may be able to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing just fine. I can remember exactly what I did at my work. Uh, but they may not be able to remember what they had, uh, done therapy, you know, two hours ago or who they met with. So that would be the difference between retrograde and antrograde memory. So the tests that I administer are looking really at antrograde memory. Hmm.
0: So me and everybody else that's probably listening is trying to remember, um, what we did on our eighth, eight year old birthday, um, which I absolutely can't do like, (laughs) can you
1: remember that? I, I only probably through pictures that I probably saw at my mom's house but that it's been years ago yeah, cuz she lives
0: it, uh somewhere else. Should I be worried that I can't remember my 8 year <laughs> No, no, no. no. Totally it, it, joking. It'll, it'll probably pop <laughs>
1: back to you when you see something.
0: Yeah. I'm sure my mom has a picture of it uh somewhere. Uh we mentioned academic ability just briefly. Um mm-hmm. why do what is it and why do we assess it?
1: yeah i i don't readily assess academics in 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 particular populations so uh, in my traumatic brain injury my stroke populations i'm not giving them tests of spelling reading or or mathematics sometimes single word reading uh, which is important if you want to especially in the neurologic populations if you want to engage pre-morbid abilities Uh, usually if someone does sustain a a head injury or stroke and as long as they're not aphasic their reading skills are typically pretty good uh, or or they're they're, going to be consistent with what they were before their injury so that can give us a measure of where they were before because remember um, if i'm assessing someone that may have had let's say a neurodevelopment uh, disorder pre-injury and then they had an injury remember as a neuropsychologist i'm comparing their scores to a normative sample so i want to get a general idea of where they were before so that's why the clinical interview is important so if i understand that the person let's say was high school diploma, uh, they had a certain job, and I can say, okay, I I could pretty much, and there's no history of a learning uh, disorder, I can gauge that that person's probably around the average range, and their reading level is about average. Uh, But outside of that, I don't typically give tests of academics, in the exception of, if we're looking at more like attention deficit uh, individuals where you wanna rule out uh, the possibility of how a learning disorder could be impacting the person's attention Uh, going forward so in those cases i i'll I'll use more sometimes a screening academic uh battery or a more comprehensive one depending on the situation
0: Mm -hmm. and a big area where we use this for learning disabilities you know to to check on if their academic ability is matching up with um what we would assume they could do cognitively and i mean we moved away from that discrepancy model not completely but um but that would be one big area of looking at academic functioning
1: well, and you'll get a lot of folks. Uh, I, I tested uh, an 18 year old not too long uh, last week where uh, their memories, his memory skills were, were, were stellar. He was able to remember a lot of information, but uh, on, on some academic testing, he was doing very poor. Uh, so there is that separation. Now, however, though, during my clinical interview, he would tell me how he does really try to improve his academics by using compensatory strategies. So in his case, having a strong memory benefited him greatly but uh, a lot of times uh, the, you know especially these younger individuals they reach that point where the material let's say at school or at work becomes so overwhelming that it overwhelms their their memory ability that then the the learning issues kick in and they they struggle uh, so so that's why you know looking at academics in a lot of those types of cases is important because you want to get a sense of where they are uh, as well as with intellectual skills I mean uh, again uh, not a not a uh, testing or I, I i when i have a range of folk I'm not, I'm not really caring so much what their iq is that's not important to me because i'm looking at function not overall or pre-morbid skills per se but again in the population like attention deficit and so on i want to be able to rule out other potential neurodevelopmental issues to see is is the the the, the potential problems that they're dealing with is that consistent with the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder or is it learning disability or is there intellectual problems going on so you want to give those tests uh, to rule those out
0: yeah and i q is actually next on my list here. you know usually when people think about testing i q is the t- first thing that pops up and it's actually one of the last things we're talking about mm-hmm. uh, but what what is i q and what does the testing look like or what are we looking for in i q testing
1: well uh, uh so we're just looking at a person's general Overall functioning, uh, just to get a sense of what their uh, overall skills are, and again, of course, it is broken down into verbal and perceptual uh, abilities, which you would expect given given our brain and our, our different hemispheres and what they control. Uh, so you can have individuals that will have strong verbal intellectual skills and maybe not so great perceptual uh, uh, intellectual ability. Uh, overall, uh, then we get that you know that sort of that one IQ number, which a lot of people sort of you know jump on as to what their what their intelligence is. Uh, but it really is looking at a whole diff- different factors so if you look at the intelligence testing again uh, uh, the, obviously the most common one out there uh you're looking at visual construction you're looking at working memory ability you're looking at processing speed uh, yeah. uh verbal information but you're also looking at the semantic knowledge and some uh some aspects of of, of executive skills even uh uh when they're asking you for uh like like on the similarities test you're you're sort of verbal abstraction or matrix reasoning you're looking at non-verbal visual abstraction uh so it's really it's it's trying to get a sense of overall all these functions uh uh and and it's coming with some index you know this your your average intelligence your high average intelligence uh, but I think you you, know, you probably would also have seen in your in some of your patients that that doesn't always equate to their functional ability, so we, we have to be careful that intellect, cognition, and function really do have to be seen separately and, and academics too uh, so I try not to weigh too much on an intellectual uh, test unless the person has a background or history of neurodevelopmental issues where you want to get a gauge of where they are uh, on on their intellect so hmm. So I try not to uh, hang my head on that too much.
0: Yeah. And we measure a very specific IQ. Like there's so many different IQs, like like having like a physical IQ is going to be someone in the NFL or... Like, you know, like me, I can't dribble a basketball. My, (laughs) my, my motor IQ is just so low, Uh, not that low, but you know, but, but there's people that have, or people that are great musicians, right? That is Mm -hmm. a total different intelligence. And then the intelligence that we're looking at, which is really how well can someone process information and make connections and make abstractions and learn, you know, more complex information and different aspects of that.
1: Right. Now, again, a lot of the tests that are in some of the intellectual tests that are out there, I use my neuropsych battery, but I don't, I don't use them all to, my goal is not to get an IQ index. I'm just, but uh, there there are certain components of of the intellectual test that, oh, that's a good visual construction test, or that's a good Mm -hmm. working memory test. So I incorporate that into my neuropsych eval, uh, but it doesn't mean my my goal is to gauge an intellectual index score to see what that is.
0: Um, So we we gave people a lot of information about Neuropsych, what you look at, why you look at it, how you look at it, the different the different domains, different populations. Um, you know, is there a specific case that you could think of where you where you can illustrate how um, a neuropsych evaluation really helped this person figure out what issue was going on and 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 sort of point them in the right direction for what to do afterwards. Wow. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, so many
1: years, uh, working in brain injury rehab, uh, it, it, so many lives that were, you know, that, that came across my path and, and then difficulty. but again, the one that stands out the most, uh, and again, uh, the reason it came up to my mind so quickly is I, I tell this story to a lot of people, uh, and it is public knowledge. This gentleman actually went out to write a small book about his experience. He was a, a British fellow, uh, was living out in West Texas at the time of his injury. This is going back, I think, 2007. Uh, and he had this posterior parietal lobe stroke. Uh, again, young man at the time. I think he was probably, probably uh, mid-40s or something. Um, and I'll never forget, there was this this is odd thing about, well, not odd, I shouldn't say that. Uh, interesting thing about him, he was like the ninth, ranked the ninth best dart player in the world. And that will always stick in my head, I don't know why. Um, so he had this really interesting stroke and, uh, I did, I was starting to do my neuropsych eval with him at the facility, and this was a gentleman who had, uh, uh, pre-morbid, you know, uh, a graduate school, uh, background. He was working, uh, in, as an IT engineer at the time of his stroke. So clearly there was no question he was at least average intelligence, right? There was no history of other neurological disease or anything else. And I got a lot of that information from his wife, um, and I'm doing some testing. And he's struggling on some really basic, basic things. Even though speech is fine, comprehension no problem. And I started to—I uh, remember—I asked him to just write a sample of something, and he could not write his name accurately. He was—it was really, really horrible. What's going on here? Um, and then uh, that, then uh, I, I started to sense that he couldn't tell the difference between his right from his left. That was another interesting. Thing. What's going on here? um and then also uh we we worked on some basic mathematical concepts and he could not do like one plus one he just couldn't he couldn't give me an answer to it so i started to really think like this is and, and right away you know uh the, the grad school classes are popping in my head when you're I, I read something like this and you know and i and then right away i'm starting to think about it and i'm, I'm going through the, uh, the the whole thing through my head and then i'm doing the sensory motor eval with him and part of the sensory motor valve that I do is I, I, I look for uh, finger identification. So I'll have the person put their hands out. I'll have them uh, close their eyes and I'll, I'll touch the finger and they'll tell me, you know. And that's when I realized he was making tons of errors. I'm like, holy cow, I think I know what this is. Um, and uh, it was one of those first times in my career that I, I hit something that was like one of those classic neuropsych cases. And it turns out the gentleman had what they call Gersman syndrome and it's it's a, a, a an injury or, or it's a syndrome after a stroke to the right uh, posterior parietal lobe and that's the four main things is a graphia so you couldn't write a calculia could not do a, a basic uh, mathematical computation get right left disorientation could not tell his right from left and also the last one the finger agnosia agnosia meaning lack of knowledge or not not understanding um and a lot of a lot of the people at the rehab center which is fine i I understand why they didn't know what was going on with him uh and uh, i remember a speech pathologist thought he was dyslexic and there was no history of that and there was no reason to explain an acquired dyslexia in this guy after a stroke so the patient was struggling and his wife was struggling to understand what was going on this is this is weird um and because the area of the brain where these four functions were was is You know, the the stroke, unfortunately, obliterated that part of the brain. While this sounds a little morbid, it was comforting to him that I was able to explain to him that this is not going to get better, that you can work on your physical issues that you have since your stroke and other issues, but this specifically will not improve. And and then we we start to do some therapy, uh, working together uh, on that to sort of help him understand that better. But the neuros- that, was, that was probably the one case where, uh, in my opinion, my neuropsych best directed someone on what their expectations were, uh, what their treatment plan was supposed to be. And uh, he actually visited about a year later uh, and he told me, he goes, he goes, Dr. Z, like you said, none of that ever got better, but he compensates. So his ability to compensate for a lot of those issues improves because he, he's, a, he's a smart guy. Uh, but all those four things that I mentioned never improved. So while I wish those things got better for him, I knew based on the neuroanatomy, based on my neuropsych testing, w- which uh, to remind you, the neuropsych test, I almost threw out all the papers because there was th- none of those tests were going to really tell me exactly what it was. I was now using the backs of those papers and starting put like a uh, putting one plus three, see if he can get that. And then I said, like, well, maybe he can't read the numbers. But what if I put one dot plus Four dots, and see if you can give me that answer. Uh, but it was just the concept of, was a was not there anymore for him. You know, so uh, the fact that I was able to do those things to help guide him, that that to me felt like that that's the job of a neuropsychologist. That's what a neuropsychologist is supposed to do. Uh, and and, uh, and again, uh, that that's why that sticks out so well because I I I've yeah. told that story several times.
0: Uh, and you know, it just shows all the components. You had your observations looking that he was functionally, appearing to function pretty well. He got his background information showing that there wasn't any mass problems. He was a great dart player, so he had some better visual skills motor than I I would ever have. Um, And and looking at his functioning beforehand, you did the testing, you saw problems um, in the testing, you got symptom review, uh, you had the uh, imaging information, so you knew where the stroke actually happened in Mm -hmm. order to guide you. And you put all that information together in order to figure out what what the appropriate diagnosis was
1: yeah yeah and again uh, the most important was to uh and and the discharge meeting he was it it was it was almost a it was a little depressing but at the same time it was euphoric for him because he knew and his wife knew Mm -hmm. uh and, and and of course even well before the discharge i informed the treatment team like this is what's going on so that also not only changed his thoughts of, of how his life was going to continue but also change the thoughts and trajectory of the therapists so they can better say okay you know what we have to revamp what we typically would do because based on dr z's results and what he's telling us if i do a b and c that's not going to benefit him let's let's help do let's change our our uh, our plan so we can come up with a treatment platform that will best help him and they did that so so there was a perfect situation where the interdisciplinary team came together uh, and again, in that case, uh, it was through the guidance of the neuropsychologist to sort of lay out that this is what's going on and this is why this is not going to get better, but other things can get better, but not this.
0: Yeah. And and we don't have time to go through a whole um, rehab talk, but just, just briefly uh, wanted to go through, <clears throat> if someone does have a stroke or a brain injury. Um, what is a typical like rehab course like how much can they regain how much time or window do they have in order to to improve like what have you seen doing all those years of work in a rehab facility that's that's sort of like the sixty four thousand
1: dollars question you know we um it, it's it's hard and i and i've, I've told several families in my years I, i'm not trying to be in the game of prediction i i want to use the the hard data uh, that i have as a neuropsychologist to best give them an impression of of how the person's trajectory is. Um, so every, every patient is going to be different. Uh, we, uh, I remember one time someone told me, you know, if you've seen one brain injury patient, you've seen one brain injury patient. So it's going to be very different. Uh, but however, though, if you look at some of the research, uh, like I mentioned earlier, folks who are aphasic, or they, or they initial, their initial presentation is aphasia. Those folks tend to improve dramatically. Look, look at someone like uh, uh, Gabby Giffords, Congresswoman Giffords. Uh, uh, She was actually treated uh, here in the Houston area Um, and uh, she she worked with some great speech pathologists and it was very intensive therapy and look where she is now like even when she presented uh, I think recently at the DNC how Mm -hmm. well uh, now granted probably very practiced uh, but but uh, really well Uh, another celebrities look at Bob Woodruff uh, ABC News anchor when he uh, experienced an IED explosion or he was uh, he was uh, the victim of an IED explosion back in 2004 it took out the left side uh, and damaged the dominant hemisphere. He's still uh, out there advocating and doing uh, news coverage. So again, there is a level of improvement. Uh, It really also, uh, the brain is very much like real estate. It's about location, location, location. So depending upon where the injury is could also impact the trajectory and the the course uh, of that person's level of improvement. So um, there's studies out there that will say continued uh, improvement can happen in a person with stroke or brain injury for years after uh, the actual injury. Again, there'll be a, there'll be a course and, and eventually maybe more of a plateau on how that uh, improvement uh, goes. but again, uh, I can't stress it enough for a person with that kind of injury to get rehab just really helps push out that improvement wave. Uh, And it helps their chances of making as much improvement Mm -hmm. versus someone who did not get any kind of therapy whatsoever.
0: Uh, It doesn't matter how quickly they get into rehab after the onset of injury.
1: You know, uh, that's another one. So uh, after a a severe injury or stroke, the person will be in an acute setting, and then Mm -hmm. they may go into like some sort of subacute setting. The 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 main goal, of course, in those settings is for medical stability. So you're not going to try to engage someone in intensive therapy until they're Mm -hmm. medically stable um depending upon that, yeah I mean, sometimes uh, and, and if there's a lot of behaviors, you may not want to thrust someone into a comprehensive rehab program if there are too if there's too many behaviors going on so they're not attending to the therapy they're they're especially if they're a frontal injury they're going to be impulsive or inappropriate or mm-hmm. aggressive so depending again, depending on the case, if it's an aphasic person, yeah, I think, or and they have a uh, hemiparesis there's there's a, a need for physical therapy and occupational therapy yes uh the sooner the better uh if the person is more frontal and there's a lot of other behaviors that may thwart their ability to complete a comprehensive program it may be better for them to go to some sort of neurobehavioral program first uh sometimes to get psychiatry on board to help quell some of those behaviors and emotions so they can get into a th-
0: a, a, a more post acute setting to get the therapy they need Mm-hmm. And you, you had mentioned, you know, that that there could be, you know, uh, recovery quicker in the beginning and kind of plateauing. Um, is there any time frame uh, that that we consider where where we would assume a plateau? Is there any anything around that? I think I think a good indication
1: uh, for most is is that first six to nine months. I, I think you'll see a lot of improvement in the first six to nine months. But again, I, I don't want to uh, say that it will not it will stop at six to nine months. By no means. But you're going to see a lot of improvement early on uh once the person is medically stable uh and then uh again you have have to uh, i i don't want to take away from the fact you're going to have a subset of people that will not get any kind of rehabilitation services versus some that do so i in my opinion the person that gets the rehabilitation services will have a a more steeper or, or or better trajectory in terms of their improvement and probably more prolonged because remember A person may come to a post-acute facility for three months six months of therapy uh doesn't mean that once they leave that place they've graduated so therapy continues on so if that person can develop some good compensatory strategies and also and most importantly get the family educated uh, that's going to help really push out their uh, ability to make more improvements in the years to come so so really, it's a combination of things. I I I try not to give like a specific number, like it will be this. Uh, it's, it's hard to do because, again, it goes back to a lot of patients. Every patient is going to be different, uh, not only in their, the nature of their injury, but their support level, the care, the, the amount of care they're going to receive. So that's going to uh, or the amount of resources they have. You know, some people will not be able to get the kind of doctors and therapists that another person would. So that's also something to consider.
0: Okay. All right, so if people are um, interested in, in checking up on what you're doing or actually want to get an eval by you or, or see if there's any updates, how can they, how can they follow you?
1: Yeah, so um, I, uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at uh, Jardik, uh so you can follow me there. Also, I have a website. Uh, it's www.gcneuropsychology.com, and the GC stands for Gulf Coast. Uh, my uh, practice is Gulf Coast Neuropsychology. Uh, But if you want to learn more about neuropsychology as well, Mm -hmm. I would advise going to uh, APA.org and then uh, look for Division 40. Division 40 is the uh, uh, Clinical Neuropsychology Division of the APA. Um, uh, If you want to look for a person in your state that is a board-certified neuropsychologist, I would recommend going to uh, 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 the AACN.org, and that stands for the American Academy of Clinical Neuropsychology. Uh, so there you can look by state and look for uh board certified individuals or neuropsychologists in in your state
0: okay and any um interesting uh books that you recommend that that people check out to to learn more about neuropsychology
1: i, I still think the era by uh, d Tommaso uh is just a great book it came out in 94 and it was just if you want to really get a good sense of executive dysfunction. Uh, that That's just a great book. And also just sort of the background and history on, on on how it was viewed uh, hundreds of years ago versus having someone like Di Tommaso uh, really uh, come out there and uh, explain it so well. Uh, and I'm not, it's not Di Tommaso, uh, Damasio, excuse me. Uh, mm-hmm. And it just, uh, uh, that, that I would say is a really good book to follow.
0: Okay, great. Um, so of course I'll put all this stuff in the show notes like I always do. Uh, mm-hmm. i really appreciate you uh taking out time in order to come on the show and and teach people about neuropsych the different testing uh what you guys look like and also for the community to know when they're asking you know when they're going for a neuropsych eval or or a physician might recommend a neuropsych eval or a school what is it that they're actually um signing up for no it's,
1: it's very important and again uh, uh knowledge is power so i think really the the, the individual needs to know uh, they, they, see the psychology at the end of that word, but the neural part always scares them. Uh, again, I, the, one of the first things I tell them, is said, it, it sounds scary, but it's really not. Uh, again, it's, it's going above and beyond what maybe a, a typical psychological evaluation would include. Because again, we want to gather more information, uh, on the cognitive skills, but also, in, you know, incorporating psychosocial, psychological, sensory motor, neurological as well.
0: Okay. Sounds great. Thanks for coming on.
1: All right, Jason. Thanks. Bye-bye.